two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiefman, and it's great to be with you here this fabulous afternoon. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking very much about exploring Israel through the lens of the Six-Day War. And, you know, after the war, the Six-Day War actually had a tremendous impact on world Jewry. The events that led to the war, the Six-Day War itself, and then after the war. And there's a lot to talk about what happened after the war. In fact, as always... On Thursday evenings, we have our JLI series, and those who come and participate can experience some of the interesting little documentaries as well as discussions. But we're going to talk specifically today about the aftermath of the war. There were so many new immigrants that arrived in Israel, and there was a spiritual awakening and a certain pride amongst world Jewry. But then that euphoria, as always, wears off, and all of a sudden... There's this landing back on Earth. It's the seventh day after the war. And there's different reactions, different ways that people related to the war and how they felt it applied to them in their life, the way people relate to the land of Israel in general. And that's something I'd love to talk about today is the different perspectives, perhaps, different ways people relate to Israel in their own paradigm and the way that they see it. So if we relate that to the war itself and the aftermath of the war, then we could look at the various angles and perspectives that people see the land of Israel. Now, one of them is that Israel, well, looking at the Six-Day War itself, it was a miraculous event. There was a very real threat that was looming onto Israel when Anwar Sadat, not Sadat, he was the later one, when, um, oh, what was his name? See if you remember. Nasser. When Nasser was expressing his incitement and rhetoric against Israel, that was real. And when he was bringing his army up and massing around the borders of Israel, both the Egyptian as well as Jordanians and in the north, Syria, that was a real threat to Israel. When Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran and all their other actions dismissing the UN peacekeepers, those were real threats that Israel faced. And when we're back, we're going to talk a little bit about how we face those threats and the results of the war. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. And welcome back. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiedman, and we're talking here about the aftermath of the Six-Day War, the threats that were looming upon Israel before the war. And then came that lightning quick, stunning, amazing, triumphant victory for Israel. And there was a very mixed reaction to it after the war. There were different feelings. Many people felt, yes, indeed, there was a real threat against Israel. But Almighty God, in His infinite 
compassionate kindness and love for his people intervened on behalf of Israel. And that's why we had such a stunning victory. It was so dramatic, so unexpected, that there was no normal, real way of explaining what happened. In fact, one of the PowerPoint presentations I got is of the Yediot Achronot newspaper, one of Israel's most widely circulated dailies, and I don't know if it still is, but those who read Ynet is Yediot Achronot, the English website as well as the Hebrew. And they had the headline of their cover newspaper said, Etzbalakim. This was the finger of God. And that was the general feeling amongst many of the troops, the generals, the general populace of Israel was that God had directed the battle. And Jews weren't afraid to admit that. One of the commanding officers of the time, Raphael Eitan, who was a commander of the paratroopers of the 35th Brigade, he later served as the chief of the staff in the IDF, he said after the war that apparently someone in heaven was watching over us. Every unintended action they took and every unintended action we took always turned out to our advantage. Those are his words. Raphael Eitan. So without a doubt, this was certain for so many Israelis, so many Jews around the world that this was a miraculous victory. The world witnessed a modern day miracle. You watch the BBC report, I remember... I mean, I wasn't around 50 years ago, don't get me wrong there. But I recall watching different documentaries and you hear, at least their initial reports were, miracle of biblical proportions, that's the way they described it. The war was a triumph. It was amazing to see in the remarkable speed and the the, the territorial gains that Israel had. The minimal losses of life. This is in fact what led Moshe Dayan, who was the general who commanded, who led this war, why he called it the Six-Day War. It was an actual deliberate echo of the six days of creation. And the idea, of course, was just as God created the world in six days, God rescued Am Yisrael, God saved us, from the looming Holocaust, from the threats and danger of all the enemies who were trying to attack us and annihilate us during this war. But we're talking now, after the war. The victory. The seventh day, the day of Shabbos, when we finally get to rest. But you see, you know what happens after a really long summer Shabbos. We don't get those here, especially not these days. But in general, I find Shabbos in Johannesburg, is a very balanced, it's actually very nice because pretty much every week, shul starts the same time. You get to go home, you're by having dinner by 7.30 in the evening. Shabbos day, a nice, similar, beautiful routine at our shul in Santon Central. After our weekly delectable brachas, we dava mincha, and then we have a Pirkeavat ethics of our fathers discussion that goes on till three, four in the afternoon with a lot of people participating. And then by the time it's six PM, time to dava Mayrev, and even winter time, even summertime, I should say. Now is winter here. Even summertime, 
Shabbos is not something that drags on too long. And now it's beautiful when Shabbos, I mean, Shabbos is the same amount of time wherever you are in the world. But if you are in the Northern Hemisphere and you're spending Shabbos now in certain European cities or even New York where I come from, Shabbos could be very long in the sense that Shabbos only begins close to 9 p.m. on Friday. And that means it's only ending at 10 p.m. on Saturday night. You spend time in Europe now in certain places, maybe Holland, Belgium, go further out to Finland and Denmark and Sweden. Their Shabbos is ending well around midnight, if not later. So it's a whole different experience. And the idea we're talking here is how it's Shabbos. And Shabbos, like we said here in Joburg, is very pleasant and nice. It should be so everywhere in the world. But when you're in those cities where Shabbos is really dragging on long, you wonder, what should we do? What's the next step in this little, uh, you know, what's, what's up next? In fact, there was a joke they used to say, in Israel, there are two popular jokes that describe the mood of the Six-Day War. One was describing before the war, there was a sign at Ben-Gurion, well, it wasn't called yet Ben-Gurion, at the Lud airport. It said, the last person out of the country should please turn off the lights. And then, in the second joke, they would discuss after the war, the two officers were talking about how to spend the day. And one said, well... Let's conquer Cairo. And the other replies, but what are we going to do after lunch? See, it's a long, drawn-out day. Seventh day, it's a day of rest. But it's been a long seventh day in that sense. It's 50 years since the Six-Day War. And there have been very many mixed reactions. And what we're talking about here is the one that certainly saw it as miraculous. The perception that Israel, the entire Jewish people, the nation had collectively experienced a miracle and this actually led to a widespread religious awakening. So many Jews already in the 60s then, there was the Baal Teshuvah movement. During the hippies time and the youth uproars and everything else that was happening in the 60s in New York, there was Woodstock and I'm sure here in Joburg, you had your own version of spiritual awakening. And then came the Six-Day War. And with all the miracles that people experienced, in fact, Shavuos was just a few days after the conclusion of the war. And the Kotel, the Western Wall, for the first festival since 1948, was opened to Jewish civilians. Everyone was welcome there for the first time in 19 years. And hundreds of thousands of Jews came. They came not just from within the borders of Israel, but from all over the world, from South Africa, from America, from Australia, from Europe, from everywhere. People cried. They prayed. They thanked God for the incredible miracles, for the salvation, for saving the Jewish people during this war. And so there you had a strengthening of the Baal Teshuvah movement. So many people were inspired by the sight of God's hand and the victory that they wanted to anchor that inspiration in their own lives in some way or another. Many came to learn more in order to make meaning of the events of the Six-Day War, of everything that occurred before their eyes. And it also led 
to an increase, an uptick in Aliyah, and many more people returning to the borders of Israel within the Green Lines in those days and beyond after. One of the things we're going to explore this evening are the specific numbers related to Aliyah. For example, here in South Africa, they talk about there was, in 1967, prior to the war, about 200-some Olim, Jews from South Africa, moving to Israel. In 1970, there were 803 Olim. When I talk at our Chabad Seniors Club, I hear the stories of so many of the different seniors, many of them who've moved to Israel and some who have returned since for one reason or another. But the fact is, and this is the words of Telfed, there was an activist, Sidney Shapiro from Telfed, and he says that until the Six-Day War, Western Aliyah was not really a major force. You look at the numbers, there were less than 200,000 Jews, uh, sorry, less than 2 million Jews living in Israel, 1967. Today, over 7 million Jews live in the Holy Land. So he says the wave of post-1967 Alim, it changed the entire face of Aliyah. For the first time, there was sizable numbers of immigrants from the West as compared to just a trickle that was coming before. And of course, this not only had an impact on Western Jews, but Jews living, for example, in the Soviet Union. They were paying very close attention to the developments in the war because the mighty USSR was the prime backer of Egypt and Syria and Jordan, and they anticipated a major victory for the Arab countries. And what happened? Israel's victory sent a message to Soviet Jews that the Soviet behemoth was not invincible, that there was a reason to be proud to be Jewish, even in the gulags, even in dark Soviet Russia, and that they should keep their hope. They shared a kinship with and fate with the Jews of Israel. Not to give up. You speak to Refusnikim, like Natan Sharansky and others, this was a major hope for Jews residing in Russia and other former Soviet Union countries during those days. So, when you look at miracles, and something we're going to talk in more detail, please God, tonight, you look at what is a miracle. We're going to discuss the various definitions. If you just pick up your phone, if you're not driving now, you could check out the online Oxford Dictionary gives two definitions. And without discussing it in much detail here on the radio show, there's one type of miracle that's an improbable event, and another which is an inexplicable event. Now, improbable is the kind, I would say, the Six-Day War was, where it was extraordinary. It was spectacular but sort of explainable to some degree. An inexplicable event, which is the more accurate definition of the word miracle, is, just to give you the online Oxford definition, they say it's a remarkable event or development that brings very welcome consequences. Now, of course, God performs all kinds of miracles, and we'll discuss a little bit about the halachic aspects and elements of what miracles are. The Torah contains both these both these kinds of miracles. You think about the biblical types of miracles beyond explanation. Although the Gemara does talk about the explanations one could offer for various miracles that have happened, including the ten plagues, 
and including the splitting of the sea. So, yes, indeed, many of those miracles, the Talmud says, are to some degree explainable. But if you look at the larger picture, the scope and speed of the victory, there were so many small episodes that had God's fingerprints all over them. And I'd love to share with you some of the examples which we're going to watch this evening on the screen. For example, a few days before the war, and this is something that was unbeknownst at all to the Israelis, was that the Egyptians made a number of changes in the military command of the Sinai. Now, those changes is just unbelievable because Israel themselves were completely surprised by Egypt's moves. The Israelis says we didn't, the Israelis afterwards said they had no clue that the Egyptians changed all their division commanders, which of course provided the Israelis with this, with this huge advantage over the Egyptians. There were other stories and incidents with Egyptian pilots, one of the generals going up into the air to take an aerial view of his military and warning his soldiers not to shoot one shot into the air. Now, just at that time, it happens to be that the Israelis came and completely bombarded the Egyptian military and wiped out it completely, utterly finished off their entire air force on the ground without one shot coming from the Egyptians. I mean, just imagine that. I mean, why would the Egyptians, they had state-of-the-art military weapons. They had anti-air missiles, whatever those are called, to defend themselves against the Israeli aggressions. And yet, that is miraculous, what actually happened there. And you think about, as we know, that Israel scored this breathtaking victory in the Sinai. The Egyptians, the Egyptian divisions that were stationed there were far outnumbering the Israelis. They had 100,000 Egyptian troops. They had 950 tanks. They had 1,100 armored personnel carriers. They had more than 1,000 artillery pieces. And yet, there was very little resistance in all this disarray, which no doubt could be described as miraculous. And I think about the Torah portion we just read three weeks ago, the portion of Bichu And that Torah portion there easily described to us this miracle. God says, that you'll pursue your enemies. They will fall before you by sword. Exactly as the verse describes is what happened in the Six Day War. Five of you will pursue a hundred of your foe. And a hundred of you will pursue ten thousand. Look at the maths. Five of you. Twenty each. A thousand of you. Sorry, a hundred of you. Will pursue ten thousand. Look how the number grows exponentially. Which, by the way, is a very powerful lesson that Rashi in his commentary talks about. He says there's no comparison between a few fulfill the Torah and the many fulfill the Torah. And I think Rashi there is telling us something very powerful. The schus, the privilege of a large number of mitzvah observers is so disproportionately greater than the merit of a smaller group. 
smaller group of pursuers, yes, five of you will pursue a hundred, no doubt. But the higher the proportionality is the number pursued, the more people we have engaging in Torah and observance of mitzvahs and commitment to the Almighty, to God, that's how many more of our enemies will pursue. And just think about that message and lesson for each of us. And the verse in Deuteronomy, which we're going to read in a couple of weeks' time. God will cause your enemies rise up against you to be defeated, to be defeated before you. They'll come out against you from one direction, but they'll flee from you in seven directions. When you think about Israel's spincer uh, attacks, and you think about the various techniques Israel used, and you look at the little minimal resistance that they faced, and the casualties, it's incredible. It's extraordinary. It is miraculous. Another one of the amazing events that happened was the war was actually virtually won in the first few hours of hostilities when Israel destroyed almost all the aircraft of the Egyptian Air Force. But why were they such easy targets, people wonder. And Michael Oren explains in his book, The Six Days of War, and he basically describes how the Jordanians had message codes with them and the Egyptians. But somehow, again miraculously, the Egyptians changed the encoding frequencies which prevented the Jordanians from being properly alerted. So they had no clue that their their fellow Arab Republic nation of Egypt was just preemptively struck by Israel who completely wiped out their entire air force. The message didn't get across to the Jordanians. The only message that they heard, somehow, was from Egyptian radio saying that the Egyptians are winning. So the Jordanians chose to get involved. Well, they'll help there if the Egyptians are winning. Let us join the cause. We'll fight against Israel. We'll help our allies, the Egyptians. They were, and they were a team, a republic together. And... We know what happened to the Jordanians. Israel begged them and pleaded with them, mix out of the war. You want to show your allegiance to your allies, to your neighbor, to your friend? What's one thing? You want to fight with us? It's not going to end very well. And that's when Israel nearly tripled in size by occupying the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, which were all previously ruled by the Jordanians. Then, of course, occupying Sinai, which was part of the war with Egypt, and Golan Heights, as part of the war with Syria. So, no doubt, there were a lot of miraculous events that happened throughout this war. And we'll talk a lot about that this evening, but we saw God's fingerprints throughout the war. Let's talk about some other reactions when we come back. Two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. Well, welcome back to Soul to Soul, ladies and gents. And we're continuing our discussion here about the reactions of various Jews around the world to the Six-Day War. We talked about those who saw the open miracles and there's so many different, not just the larger picture, but even the various smaller episodes and details that happened throughout the war. But there's another 
reaction that many other people had. You see, a lot of people, when it comes perhaps to miracles like the Nile turning into blood, it's very easy for them to claim that that absolutely is extraordinary. It is clearly evident that that's miraculous. It's it's just something that is impossible otherwise. But there were many who, in the aftermath of the war, they did not see it as miraculous. In fact, they refused to accept the notion that a miracle transpired. For some, maybe it was due to their professed atheism. Others may have believed in the existence of a creator, but didn't accept that God actively intervenes in the world's affairs. And others... Those who questioned the Jewish right to occupy Palestinian land, so to say, in the first place, they didn't believe that God would intervene on behalf of what they considered an immoral cause. And for these people, the way to deal with the aftermath of the war was to reevaluate their perceptions about how real the threat had actually been. Perhaps Israel had never been actually in as precarious a position as the Israeli media had broadcast. Maybe they, maybe the population had overreacted. Maybe it wasn't as bad as they anticipated. Perhaps the victory was actually perfectly logical as a consequence of Israel's superior intelligence gathering. And don't forget the military preparedness. They were getting ready for this war. Perhaps the fear of a second Holocaust was just fear-mongering by Israeli politicians. And this is another reaction that different people had in Israel. And personally, as one who likes to see things from all sides, from all different perspectives, I read Al Jazeera just like I read Haaretz, put them on the same side, Yidiot Achronot, Arut Sheva, many different media outlets, and especially Chai FM, tune in to the news on the hour and hear the headlines. I'd say here Chai FM were quite balanced. It's a good place to be at. But when you look at it from the Al Jazeera perspective, or even Haaretz, and you listen, read the articles by some reporters such as Gidon Levy, who usually take a very left-standing and uh, completely different perspective, you see there a whole different reaction. And someone like Givadon Levy says, what miracles? Al Jazeera talks about, they don't deny the Arab provocations, but they talk about Israel's preemptively striking, initiating the war. There was no real threat against Israel. Yes, they agree that there were words, but the Israelis also provoked. And they'll say that the moving the peacekeepers from Sinai was only an act of preparation for defense for the Egyptian army. And they'll completely blame Israel and to some degree maybe blame Nasser for not being proactive enough. But pretty much they deny the fact that Israel was in any mortal danger. And in fact, Israel is blamed as the immoral aggressor. And that is a perspective not only held by anti-Israel, anti-Zionist factions, but I'm talking even many Israelis in the left have that kind of reaction of feeling. 
But I think it gets even a step further than that. Because it's not only the Israeli left, the secular perspective, the atheist Jews who don't even believe in God. And may I say that many of these re, these feelings, these sentiments, this perspective has become increasingly pervasive in recent years. A lot of Israelis feel that way. We were a strong military and that's how we were victorious. Nothing to do with God. There is a biblical verse that describes this. It was my strength, my preparedness, my strategy, my brilliance, and maybe the losses of 73 Yom Kippur War was a little bit of a wake-up call to Israel to say, you know, don't become so smug and convinced that it's all you. But I'd like to talk a little bit about, and something that a lot of people are curious of, is religious anti-Zionists. I'm talking about ultra-Orthodox Jews who oppose the existence of the State of Israel. And just the other day, sitting in the car with Norman Stein, he was utterly disappointed by the lack of reaction in the rabbinate and in many of the, within the religious world on these beatings that are lately taking place of religious, of religious chayalim, of Israeli IDF soldiers who are religious and visit Mea Sharim to buy a book and get beaten and stoned by fellow religious Jews who oppose their defending them. They're defending the Jewish state and the Jewish people. And it's unbelievable. But it's true. And by the way, if you have some explanation to religious anti-Zionism, I really would love to hear your explanation. You're welcome to call into the studio. Or the easy way is to send a WhatsApp to our WhatsApp number, 062-148-2374, or an SMS to 34519. Because I'm really curious if anyone could explain to me religious anti-Zionism. I'll give you some explanations that I'm aware of. But it's still to me, doesn't make sense how you could have Jews who consider themselves so pious and religious, and yet their behavior, it's just unbecoming. As my father, God bless him, may he be healthy and well always, or whenever I did something that he didn't approve of, he often would say, Espasnish. it's unbecoming of you to behave in that inappropriate way. And in that sense, I could give you a little bit of explanation of the anti-Zionistic stance of these factions, these religious Haredi Jews, which I'm part of Haredi Judaism, but not in any way approving or promoting this anti-Zionistic behavior. And the truth is some Jews see the nature and character of the state of Israel as an actual affront to the divine plan. According to the Talmud, only when Mashiach comes are we to re-engage in, I shouldn't say resettlement, because settlement of the land of Israel, as we talked in previous weeks, has always been a Jewish aspiration and something Jews have always been doing. I'm talking in particular about reconquering the land of Israel, ruling the land of Israel, governing it. That is something that the Talmud says when us to wait for the coming of Mashiach. And if you want, you could join us this evening at the course and I'll give you the actual Talmudic text on that. And we'll discuss a little bit more about that when we're back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. 
Well, welcome back. I'm Rabbi Eric Even in our final moments, we're going to spend a couple of minutes here just talking about this phenomenon of religious anti-Zionism. And again, if you have some thoughts you want to weigh in on this idea, which I'm clueless about because it really is mind-boggling to me, it baffles me how you can have Jews who are so vehemently anti-Zionist in the sense that they are willing to fight against their fellow brethren, Jews who are defending them in the Holy Land. If you would like to share your thoughts, just send us an SMS or a WhatsApp or call into the studio and I'll be glad to engage with you and maybe you can enlighten us. But one of the things from a religious perspective, and there's a few religious elements here, number one is a Talmudic oath that we Jews would not force God's hand, so to say. We wouldn't take the land by force. But there was more to it, is that Zionism was a response to the failure of the Jewish emancipation. We're talking about the beginnings of the Enlightenment movement, when the Reform movement began, when Jews all of a sudden had a certain freedom. And that freedom of religion turned into freedom from religion to a large degree. And Jews became very, a lot of Jews started becoming a lot more liberal. And as some described the German Jews more German than the Germans, no matter how much Jews tried to assimilate into society. It just didn't work. We may have now been accepted by the larger universities, but there was still a lack of Jewish integration into society. And so the early pioneering Zionists, many of them felt that here is an opportunity to provide something that would be, in fact, fundamentally redefining Jewish identity. Without the baggage of the troubled past, we would have a solution to anti-Semitism where Jews as an ethnic, as an ethnicity, as an ethnic group would live together away from all the problems of the rest of the world where we're not accepted. To Hitler, you could have been a quarter Jewish. That means one in essence wasn't really Jewish, but they had Jewish genes, Jewish blood. And to him, he wanted to annihilate every last trace of every Jew. That was the final solution to the problem of Jews in the world. And so Zionism was designed not only as a solution to the anti-Semitic regimes and societies of the time, but also actually as an alternative to traditional Torah Judaism itself. Zionists, early Zionists felt that they had something to offer that was different than religious Judaism. And without discussing it in much detail now, Maybe you could debate it with me in the evening. This was one of the reasons why you have some Jews who saw the founding and the continued existence of the state of Israel as an actual transgression of a Talmudic vow that God imposes on the Jews, forbidding us from forcefully reclaiming the land. And because of this very secular spin on Zionism, which saw itself itself as an alternative to religious behavior. And because of its deeply anti-religious philosophic underpinnings, many of the Jews, especially after the Six-Day War, the religious Jews that felt that God would not perform miracles on behalf of an entity that opposes him. And so this group concluded that it was their obligation to see it and to tell the world that it was Masa Sutton, it was perhaps Satan's work. And it's a very interesting perspective. It's one, another different reaction to the war, 
where you have this idea of religious anti-Zionists. There's also another, there's also another, uh, spin on that. If anyone's read Perfidy by Ben Hecht, and he talks about a conspiracy that the Zionists were able to save many Jews from the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust, but they didn't want these religious Jews. Again, I don't know if this is correct or isn't, but there is a book that does claim this. So those are some of the things that led to these religious factions of anti-Zionism. Of course, we know that the majority of South African Jews, as well as probably most Jews around the world today, is the belief that Israel, our return there, is divinely ordained. And therefore, we support Israel to the fullest degree possible. We support the activities of the state of Israel, benefits the Jews residing in the land, and beyond the borders of the land of Israel, we Jews in the diaspora benefit from protection of the land. And I think this idea of Jewish self-governance in the land of Israel is perceived by most Jews today as a gift from God that provides millions of Jews around the world a safe haven, a place where we could go in our times of trouble where the rest of the world didn't accept us just 70 years ago when my father was a child during the Holocaust. And yes, of course, there's a religious Zionist belief and view that the establishment of the state and all the wars and the consequences of them, the conquests, the miracles that followed, some see it even, even as the beginning of redemption of the epoch of the Messianic era. Aschalta de Geula. And to many, the Six-Day War was seen as the most significant stage of our future redemption because of the reunification of Jerusalem, which we celebrate now as 50 years. But there's lots of different perspectives, and we're running short on time now, so there's no time to really discuss all of them in detail. But I would like to conclude today's discussion by reminding us about the profound insights that the Rebbe had and his prophetic words about the miraculous victory that was on the way for the Jewish people. The Rebbe kept them reminding people how Israel is the safest place in the world. That was the Rebbe's message. And so if I look at today, the decisions that Israeli leaders contend with that are still shaping the consequences, the events that the war and aftermath of the war led to. You think about what is it, what is its relevance to us today? How do we see it? Firstly, to recall that Israel is the safest place in the world. It's a place where God's eyes are upon it all year, from beginning of the year to the end of the year, all the time. And Israel is a place where we should not just think about and speak about, but it's a place we should yearn to return to. If we're able to go back to the Holy Land, so be it. If for whatever reason that proves difficult, at least to visit, at least to support it, at least to show not just our moral support, our financial support, but to live with Israel within each of us in our hearts to make the land of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, to realize its purpose as being a beacon of light, as the epicenter of the world, the beacon of light unto society.
Now, some questions coming through, for example, about why Lubavitch doesn't sing Hatikva. Maybe join me this evening at the JLI course, and we can engage in a little bit of a discussion about that. But I'll ask you, why is God's name not mentioned in Hatikva? Well, anyways, we will conclude right here. I'll sign off Rabbi Ari Kievman concluding today's discussion on Israel in perspective on soul to soul. I wish you a pleasant Shabbos, a meaningful one, and an enjoyable public holiday tomorrow. Carpe diem, seize every moment and every opportunity you have to do good and to make the world a better place.